Welcome to The Lobbying Show, a podcast about the people in government relations, how they got into it, what their jobs entail, what works, and what doesn't. I'm your host, Jim O'Brien. Welcome back to The Lobbying Show. We come to you again from Washington, D.C. Great to be back down here. And today we talk to Marcus Mason. Marcus is a partner in the Madison Group. And what were you doing at age 22? I hadn't even started law school yet, and Marcus was chief of staff to a congressman at 22. I hadn't even had an internship on the Hill yet, I don't think, or maybe I had, and he was chief of staff. There are some great moments in this interview. Marcus talks about a train ride with members of Congress on the train ride, and I would have been lobbying each and every member, probably driving them nuts. That was not Marcus's approach. Nope, very wise, kind of sat back and handled it in a totally different manner. We get some great tips and advice from Marcus. And we also talk about Marcus's very important work at the uh, part of an association called the Washington Government Relations Group, which is an organization that is dedicated to the enrichment of African-American government relations professionals here on the Hill and across the country. He's been president of that group for more than 10 years. And we also uh, spent some time talking about that. So we really enjoyed sitting down with Marcus. I think you are going to enjoy this interview. Here's Marcus. So Marcus, tell us about the Washington Government Relations Group. The Washington Government Relations Group is an organization of African-American lobbyists whose goal is to both enrich one another provide mentorship opportunities and various professional growth opportunities, and to just really give the African-American lobbyists in Washington a sort of place and a venue. It started off started off many, many years ago as the Second Wednesday Group. Uh, a group of folks founded it, and it met informally on the second Wednesday of every month. And so it took on the name the Second Wednesday Group, and then their successors formalized it and made it into the Washington Government Relations Group, otherwise uh, or commonly known as WGRG. And who were some of the founding uh, members? Some of the original founding members were uh, David War, who's still around town. He's actually the current chair of the WGRG Foundation. Uh, Anita Estelle, who was the first African-American female to ever be a partner at a lobbying firm in town or at a law firm in town. Yeah, both former Hill staffers and John Chambers, who we actually have a golf tournament named after the John Chambers Memorial Golf Tournament, and a few others who who had a vision and saw the need for something like this, the need for a pipeline so that other lobbyists would come along uh, behind them. There was a small handful back then, maybe a couple of dozen or so, and now we're uh, we're at a few hundred today. Wow. Uh, individual members. A few hundred individual members, yes. I think the last count might have been 475. And how do you go about promoting diversity? Uh, we go about promoting diversity in a number of different ways. Uh, one, we have the organization itself has a diversity task force that is co-chaired by Marie Silla, who's a lobbyist for T-Mobile and a former Hill staffer. 
and Don Cravens, who is who was one of the few African-American chiefs of staff over on the Senate side and then went over to the National Urban League and is now over at Charter Communications uh, in their public affairs department. And so we, we actually put together events throughout the year. We work with a number of different similar organizations, uh, the Hispanic Lobbyist Association, the Asian Pacific Lobbyist Association, and yeah, there, there are a few diverse groups around town, women in government relations. So we work with them and we put on these events that really help create a pipeline. So one pipeline would exist that we try to work with or that we try to build as the one from Capitol Hill to K Street. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have you have several people who are the beneficiaries of such a pipeline, uh, like Ernie Jolly over at the Mortgage Bankers Association, John Jones over at the National uh, Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. Marisa La herself was a beneficiary of that pipeline coming from Capitol Hill to go over to T-Mobile. And so we that's the first pipeline that we try to create. The second pipeline of course, is that pipeline that allows people to not just move off Capitol Hill, but to move up in their professions, to not just become a lobbyist, but ultimately to become a top lobbyist, whether that is an assistant vice president in their association or a company or a vice president in their association or company, or ultimately head of office at their association or their company. And we've had, we've had a lot of success in that regard. And the events, are they networking type or panel discussions or combination educational of both. or a combination? They're a combination of both, you know, because what's worth doing, uh, you might as well have a little fun at it because nobody wants to be talked at. But, you know, one of the things about our business, one of the things about the lobbying profession is that it, it is all about relationships and all about networking. So while we do have panels um, and structured panels that provide you know, great professional advice, lots of good Q&A. We also make time for networking and socializing and things like that. And so one of the things, one of the, one of the particular programs that we have and that we've built out over the years has been the Table Talk series. And with the Table Talk series, we have a senior government relations professional uh, come in, like a Fred Humphreys from Microsoft, who's head of office at Microsoft, or Gina Adams, who's the head of office at FedEx, or a Didi Lier, who's the head of office over at Viacom, or a Stephanie Childs, who's been head of office at several different companies, come over, and then we bring a younger group of lobbyists together who really want to learn. And they talk about, and those senior lobbyists talk about their career paths, how they got to where they are. They talk about the pitfalls. They talk about the the successes, the failures. And it really gives the younger lobbyists an opportunity to kind of learn from the best, you know, to get best practices from the people who are best in class in their profession. And you mentioned Ernie Jolly. That's how we found you. Uh, Ernie is a listener of the show and reached out to us and said, you really should, I've listened to the show, you really should interview Marcus. And I said, great, that's how we got to you. And you and your group were a mentor to Ernie and others. Ernie is one of the bright talents in this city. He may have made some of the wrong fraternal choices in life, but that's okay. <laughs> but he is truly one of the bright talents in this city. He was deputy chief of staff for a great member out of New York, Congressman Gregory Meeks, who's a who's just a great member of the House Financial Services Committee and a very astute member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. 
You know, as I heard you describe that event, that would be an interesting podcast show to have to air one of those events, one of those table talks. Sure, we we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you come in and just and air one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really a great experience. It was something that was put into place before I became head of the organization, but something that I really wanted to blow out and and grow and really put some emphasis on because you can't, if you don't have the exposure to people like that, you never even know to hope and dream and to aspire to reach those levels. And you don't know how to begin. You don't know how to start. And you don't know how to start. Yeah. You don't know how to start. And sometimes you have unrealistic expectations. You know, I've, I've had staffers come to me, uh, Young Hill staffers come to me and say, you know, Marcus, I want to I want to leave the Hill today as a legislative assistant and go lobby and make $500,000. You know, I have to take a breath before I burst out into laughter. <laughs> but, you know, I always tell them, you have to walk before you run. And you have to crawl before you walk. And usually for a while. And usually for a while. But <laughs> Unfortunately. you have to set expectations yeah. for people so that they can manage their own expectations. Because, you know, one of the things that you don't want is for someone to come out, leave Capitol Hill, and think that lobbying is something that it is not. And to think that the salary expectations or the workload is something is something that it isn't. And lobbying also, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. Since you touched on that, let's take a little tangent. What, what do you think are some of the important trademarks of a good lobbyist? I think some of the important trademarks of a good lobbyist, someone who can inspire a great deal of trust. I always say that 50% of my job as a lobbyist and advocate is advocating for my company or client. 50% of it is advocating for my company or client to Capitol Hill. The other 50% is advocating Capitol Hill to the company or the client. Because let's face it, Capitol Hill doesn't speak corporate. Corporate doesn't necessarily speak government. And so one of the best traits of a lobbyist is to be almost a translator, almost a translator and provider of information. And one guest said, and to be honest and straightforward with your client. Absolutely. About what's going, the reality Absolutely. of what's going on on the Hill. Absolutely. You have to be honest and straightforward with your client. You have to let them know this is actually what's going on. These are the actual feelings about the company. And, and don't, don't try to sugarcoat it because sugarcoating Sugarcoating perception isn't helpful to the client. And as a chief of staff, and I guess I got this, I got this early, being a chief of staff so young, speaking truth to power is fairly easy and has become fairly easy over time. So much so that over the course of my career at Amtrak, I worked with five different CEOs. All five of the CEOs trusted me because they knew that I would always tell them the truth. So speaking truth to power for you was easy. It is. And so for a for lobbyists to do their yeah. job, they have to learn how to do that or they have, have to, to learn be, how to do that. Yeah. Okay. You, you have and you have to get you have to get comfortable with doing it. And it's it takes practice. And so you take those measured steps in doing it and you develop really you develop your own style in doing it. I know some lobbyists who like to give their client a little bit of the information to let it sink in. Mm-hmm. And then they come back a little while later and really Lay it on. And it just, it really depends on the client or depends on the company that you're with or the or the executive that's managing you or whether you're that person that has to report to the CEO. It really depends on the temperament of that person. And that's something that you learn to read over time. It's not something that you, that you get 
automatically. But what I will say is those lobbyists who have worked for a member of Congress on Capitol Hill and have had to deliver both good news and bad news usually learn it, usually learn it right then and there, and they're equipped to come out into the private sector and kind of do the same thing. So it's okay if they deliver it in different ways and in different methods, just as long as they deliver it. Just as long as they deliver it. Right. I like that. (laughs) Getting back to the um, Washington Government Relations Group, the association, tell us about the Tin Cup Dinner. That's one of the things that, being president of the organization, that I'm probably the most proud of. Uh, The Tin Cup Awards, uh, and we just celebrated our 10th annual event, the Tin Cup Awards celebrates and honors those who advocate for diversity. The reason it's called the Ten Cup Awards is because but for those individuals who advocate and push for diversity, we might not sit and drink from the nice crystal glasses that we all get to drink from uh, here in Washington, but instead those of us who are, who are minorities in the lobby profession may be drinking from a humble tin cup. But for those individuals we could be drinking from that tin cup, and that's why we actually called it the Tin Cup Awards. So every year in July, and it's always in July, and it's always on a Wednesday, we host a gala dinner, and we honor a member from the House, a member from the Senate, a member from, you know, sometimes we honor a staff member. Uh, We also honor a member from the press. And then we also talk about those lobbyists of the year, and we also give an award for lifetime achievement. Wow. So it's a great event. Where is it held? So we have held it in a number of different places. The very first one was held at the Embassy of Finland. And the Embassy of Finland was so proud to have us hold the dinner there that they actually hosted it themselves. They funded the cost of the dinner themselves. And we took the proceeds and we put the proceeds into the Terry Greer Memorial Scholarship Fund. Um, And that really allowed us to just get a great start with that dinner. And so we've had it at the Embassy of Finland. We've had it at the French Embassy a number of times. And the ambassadors always come and speak. And wow. they love having it. We've also had it at, at the House of Sweden. We've held it for the last few years at the uh, Canadian Embassy. And then just recently, we had our 10th anniversary event over at the museum after the, uh, after the Canadian officials told us that we actually outgrew their space. Wow. And tell us um, about the scholarship fund. The Terry Greer Memorial Scholarship Fund is a fund that's administered by the Washington Government Relations Group Foundation. So we do have a nonprofit arm, a 501c3, uh, that awards these scholarships. And it gives young men and young women, uh, college-age students, and now we're even reaching into the graduate ranks, who are interested in government affairs, government or its complement, political science or its complement. We provide a scholarship to those students so that they can, A, be exposed to uh, the profession of government relations, uh, but B, the cost of college is so high, we just want to make sure people can get through school. So, you know, my philosophy was lobbyists do well, so let's do some good. And that's why we pushed this scholarship forward. I think this past year or at this last dinner, we gave away two $10,000 scholarships to students one of which who couldn't be here. And so he actually uh, did a video chat from South Africa uh, where he was off doing an internship. And do you have students reaching out to you who are looking for internships on the Hill? We have both. So we have students who reach out to us, but we also actively market 
our programs on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We work with uh, pan-Hellenic organizations. We work with uh, the various universities, uh, Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund, um, and a number of others. We even work with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation that has its own scholarship and internship program. But for students that that may still have a need, we continue to market and cross-market with those organizations. And then we also have students, because we've been doing it now for and had success now for a decade, we also have students reaching out to us. I, I believe we awarded our 41st and 42nd scholarship this last year, as well as provided our first two internships. And as an industry, how are we doing in regards to diversity? A lot better today and a lot better this year than we did, than we were last year, um, and a lot better last year than the year before. I mean, we've seen with the incredible growth uh, in the number of members in the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and what is called known as the Tri-Caucus, and really with Democrats taking over, over the majority, we saw two things. One, we saw a talent pool from the Hill that could actually leave and come out and do these jobs. And then two, we saw more offices, whether they be associations, companies, or lobbying firms, see the need for diversity. So we're doing a whole lot better. You know, again, we talked about Ernie Jolly earlier. He, just last year, was a staffer for Congressman Greg Meeks. We talked about John Jones earlier. Just last year, he was chief of staff for uh, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver. Today, both members have gavels uh, on the House Financial Services Committee. You know, there's Francesca Cox, uh, there's Ariadne Williams, there's a number of new and talented lobbyists walking around Washington right now. Nana Nayan, Kyle Williams, who's now the head of office at Oplones, uh, was a staffer for Marsha Fudge before going to the Urban League and is now at Oplones. Uh, my wife, my, my very own wife, uh, Christina Mason, who was a staffer for Congresswoman Yvette Clark, who sits on the Energy and Commerce Committee, she was at the American uh, Institute of Architects, and now she's the head of office at uh, the wireless internet s- service providers. And so we have seen a we've seen you know a growth in both the number of heads of office. Um, Nicole Francis just yesterday was announced as the new head of office for for the Interstate Natural Gas Association. And so we've seen some growth. We've seen some. We've seen a great deal of expansion, and we're not going to go backwards. From there, I think our, I think our pipeline efforts are showing some success. I think our table talk efforts are showing some success. I think our work with uh, some of the search firms out there, with Julian Hyde, Hydrogen Struggles, and uh, Corn Ferry, and and then with Conrad Woody at his new firm, I think we've seen some success there at identifying good, solid candidates who can go in, interview well, and then get the job. But not just get the job do the work and do the work well. Now let's talk about your career. I think you still hold the, what would you call the title, the honor of the youngest top staffer in Congress. Is that correct? I I do. Youngest chief of staff. Unfortunately. Unfortunately? Why unfortunately? (laughs) Because I really want to see, I really want to see some young person break that record. I think it's going to be hard. You are how old? I was 22 years old. so That's was, a hard record to break. I ran and won my first congressional campaign when I was 21. And and, very, and, where, and that was in California? That was in California okay, for, and, uh, for then mayor who would become Congressman Walter Tucker. He was the mayor of Compton. And so it was one of those moments 
you know, it's like a Disneyland moment. He said, okay, you just won your first congressional campaign. What do you want to do? And with everything I had in me, I looked at him and I said, I want to be an intern. And he looked at me and said, oh, no, no. He said, come back to me tomorrow with something else. So I went home and talked to my folks and my stepfather at the time, well, now my late stepfather, had actually served in the Reagan administration. And he had served with Jack Kemp over at HUD. And he knew about, of course, he knew about the title chief of staff. Uh-huh. And he talked about his friends who were chiefs of staff and and different things like that. And he said, son, you ought, to, you ought to be chief of staff. So I went back the next day and I said, okay, I want to be your chief of staff. <laughs> and he said, that's what I wanted to hear. And, you know, we went out and and came to Congress, and the rest is pretty much history. That's incredible. You went from from one day asking to be an intern, and come back the next day and asking to be the top staffer, chief of staff, and he said yes. He said yes because I was his top staffer on the campaign. That's incredible. So he said, "Why would you? Why would you ever go backwards That's, from uh, the gains that you've made?" He you said, got some "You know, great advice from your stepdad." Yeah, no, from my stepdad, and a real and a and, really and great opportunity from from Congressman Tucker just to take a risk on a young person. And what you were talking about earlier, exposure. Exposure, absolutely. Can we back up a little bit? Sure. What was your first, so he was the mayor of Compton. What was your first exposure to government or politics? Obviously, how did you get involved in the campaign? How did you get to know the mayor? How did it all, what was your first government political exposure? So my first exposure to politics was on a state Senate campaign in California, a guy named Paul Richards. He was running for uh, state senate uh, in California, 25th district. Uh, remember it just like it was yesterday. And I got to be a field organizer. And I got to help, uh, got to be a field organizer and help on the fundraising side. And it was fun. It was great. And so I was in City Hall one day because I was actually interning for the city attorney at the time, Wes Fenderson. And so while I'm getting on the elevator, and Walter's getting off the elevator. The mayor's getting off the elevator. And we literally and we literally bump into each other. And he hands me a card. And he says, hey, man, I'm running for Congress. Uh, I need your help. And I said, okay. So he hands me a card and walks off. I go home, talk to my family, and said, the mayor said he's running for Congress. He wants me to help him. So my mother looked at me, and she said, you ought to be his campaign manager. And I said, well, I've never run a campaign. She said, but you've worked on the campaign. She said, you have, you have great leadership skills, and I'm sure that you can do this. And so I went back, and we had a long conversation about it. And he took me out. He took me with him to a speech, and he opened up his trunk, and he said, hey, make sure all these collaterals get out over are all distributed. And I looked, and I said, well, that's not what a campaign manager does, just instinctively. And so I saw these two kids who were out playing in the lobby, and I said, hey, you two come with me. And I said, I need you to distribute and pass out all of these all over the place. And I'll give you 20 bucks for it. And so the kids jumped at the opportunity. While they were doing that, I walked inside the ballroom and listened to a speech, took notes on some of the things that he said and some of the things that I liked and that I didn't like, and then went back out to check on the progress. So he comes out maybe 10 minutes after that, and he looks around. And he's like, wow, you're fast. And I said, no. I paid them to do it. And he was like, and he slapped me on the back. He's like, wow, you're good. That's what I wanted to see. You are a manager. And so, uh, yeah, he took, pretty good. he took me back to his office and he said, um, you know, he opened, we were standing at the, at the front of the campaign office and he said, what do you see? And I said, well, I can tell you what I don't see. And this was all based on having been an organizer 
and doing some of the fundraising work for Paul Richards. And I looked and I said, well, I'll tell you what I don't see. I don't see anyone on the phone banks. I don't see any organization around the call sheets. And back then, everything was really paper-based. And I said, I don't see any organization around the call sheets. I don't see any real life. I said, there's a, there's a better way to do this. And he said, really? I said, yeah. He said, okay. Well, he walks down, walks down through the office, walks into his personal office and looks out and, say, and says, gang, that's Marcus. He's the new campaign manager. Marcus, this is the gang. Let's go win. <laughs> wow. That's and, great. <laughs> and so uh, when you come to Capitol Hill, what is it like to be the chief of staff for a congressman? What is the Hill like? Give our listeners just a feel for what that's like. So the Hill, let me tell you, as a, as a 22-year-old from Los Angeles, California, coming to Washington, D.C., the Hill was just this big place. They did an orientation for us in the caucus room of the Cannon House office building. And, th- and at that point, then-Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, Walks in, and these are people that you that you've read about in your in your political science courses and in your government classes, um, and positions that you've seen. And Tom Foley, uh, Speaker Foley, walks in, and it's to a group of young chiefs and uh, young senior staffers. And he says, he says two things that have stuck with me to this day. He pointed out at the Capitol, and he said, if at any day or at any moment that you look up at that building and you don't see a sense of awe, it's time for you to leave this time for you to leave the city. The second thing that he said was Republicans are our opposition and they are loyal. The Senate is our enemy. <laughs> <laughs> and so those were the types of things that I learned, you know, coming in. But let me tell you the other thing. The Hill is one big community. It is one large campus. I have met some of the best friends that I've ever had, that I will ever have in life on Capitol Hill. Just the other day, a group of us were together, and the first people I met on the Hill were Darlene Taylor, Joyce Brayboy, and uh, Yebby Watkins. Not in that particular order. In fact, it was Joyce Brayboy who was the first person that I had met on Capitol Hill, and we have been friends to this day. That was in 1993. We have been friends and like family ever since. Not like family, you know, because your friends are the family you choose. So that's the other thing about the Capitol that I think is missed by most Americans, mm-hmm. that we work together so well because we have such great relationships with one another. There is such a great deal of trust with one another and someone who you care about, you're never going to, you're never going to try to harm. These are real people. Here. They're not avatars on social media. They're not images that you see on Facebook or in a newspaper. These are real people with real lives. We all care about each other. You know, Yebby is, is like a big brother to me. Joyce is like a big sister, has always been like a big sister to me. I know his nieces. My oldest daughter is, is a niece to him and really close with his friends. So that's the other thing about, about the Capitol. It's a very close-knit it's a very close-knit place. It's a very close-knit ecosystem. We know each other. We, we worship with each other. We eat together. We pray together. We celebrate babies together. We attend weddings together. It's just really, really, really a wonderful place and filled with the best and brightest minds and the sharpest thinkers and the best hearts 
that you'll ever find in this country. And when we're in contentious times like now, is it hard to have those relationships for the staffers across the aisle? I think it's hard, but I think it still goes on. It still goes on. Because uh, the work still has to be done. Because the work has to be done. I mean, these are very, very committed people to their bosses, to their districts, their states, and to the country. And, you know, yes, they do a great job of clearing out the noise or and trying to clear out the noise just so that they can continue to work together. This hypersense of partisanship uh, that exists today because of social media and some in the 24-hour news cycle, it creates a false narrative about the work of government and about the work of governing and about politics. Now, you know, politics is always involved in every, in every decision. But look, at the end of the day, the pendulum swings from right to left. But it always comes through the center, right? And so that's what in the center is where both sides come together to work and get things done. Uh, how long did you spend on the Hill? Uh, I was there from 1993. January 3rd, 1993 was the official start uh, until November 1999. When you were started when you were 22. Started when I was 22. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wet behind the ears, too. So <laughs> a lot of good people and a lot of good mentors. Carlotta Scott was just a—she was chief of staff for Ron Dellums at the time. She was just a great mentor to me. Lorraine Miller, who went on to be—she worked for Speaker Foley, who went on to be the clerk of the House— um, was just a great mentor to me. And so you told us what, what the community is like. What's the toughest part of the job that you remember? The toughest part of the job, really, probably managing the office, the managing the office, managing the staff and the expectations. And Carlotta told me when I first started, she said, Marcus, if they were all robots, everything would be easy. She said, but they're people. And they're subject to all the quirks and foibles that people are subject to. And they have all the expectations and wants that people have. And so you have to manage that every day as much as you have to manage the process and the politics. Yep. And so, you know, much like relationships are the best part of it, re- best part of the Hill, um, and the best part of Washington, relationships, is, relationships can also be the hardest part, the interpersonal. Right. Because you do have to deal with... People, these offices are not big, right? The West Wing has everybody believing that these offices are big and grand and palatial. No, they're— And doing a lot of walking around. And doing a lot of walking around, no. (laughs) No, these offices are actually small and compact, and you work with people on a day-to-day basis. You get to know people sometimes a little better than you want to get to know them. And I would imagine that being the chief of staff was great training for what you do now because you saw firsthand— what didn't work and what did work when people Absolutely. would come in and saw, see you. Absolutely. I, I got to see what, what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, I, I always tied my life, I always say my life is tied together, you know, through a number of different experiences. And playing free safety uh, at Arizona State, you know, was also very helpful in even being chief of staff because you could sit back and watch. <laughs> That's, that is a good description. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of figure out where you needed to go, fill the hole. Exactly. And, and figure out where you need to go. Where the problem was. Where the problem was, was. And then and then go over and solve for X and then get right back to your position and, <laughs> yeah. and not get beat deep. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you um, you spent a number of years at Amtrak. Yes. What was that like? You know, it was great. It was great. It was a great place to cut my teeth in lobbying because I learned a few things. I learned how to manage a brand a big brand. I mean, Amtrak, 
back then, you know, was had become part of the country's sort of nomenclature for train. Mm-hmm. Much like Xerox became the nomenclature for making a copy, and Google is now, you know, part of the lexicon for for looking something up. Yep. Amtrak was part of the country's lexicon just for trains. Oh, that's an Amtrak. No, 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 no. That's a that's a Burlington Northern Santa Fe train. Oh, well, Amtrak is a train, right? But it's a brand. So <laughs> learning to manage a big national brand uh, that operated in 46 states and more than 550 communities that had more than, that had different lines of services uh, was great. And really at the time when high-speed rail was being introduced to this country, it's not so new to the rest of the world, but high-speed rail is still fairly new and still in its infancy in this country. So I got to work on some great projects like the Cascades and the Pacific Surfliner and Amtrak's Acela Service. So I was there to launch all, to help launch all three and to inform Capitol Hill about them. But really, you know, Amtrak also taught me, taught me some other things about lobbying that I never expected. What's that? You know, so back then, uh, members of the House and Senate would take trains to their various retreats. And so, you know, the House Democrats would go down or, or no, the Senate Republicans would go up to the Greenbrier. Sometimes the House Republicans would go up to the Greenbrier. Um, and then the House Dems would go down to a resort in Williamsburg. And, you know, they would all take the trains in various ways. I mean, to, to each of the destinations. And I would always have to be on the train. And somebody And somebody once said to me, wow, it must be great to be on the train with all those members. You get to lobby them all. I said, I don't lobby anybody. They said, well, what do you do? I said, I actually sit back and watch. I watch who sits with whom, who talks to whom, who plays cards, who plays bidwist, who sits with their wife, who plays poker, who sits with their kids, who sits alone. You sort of watch what they eat, what they don't eat. And, you know, you're, you're there as a resource if you need to be, but you don't want to be overbearing because you have them in a captive environment. And that's where I really learned about the relationships in in Washington, if you saw the same four members sitting together over the course of a two or three hour or four hour trip, you knew they pretty much liked each other. (laughs) You knew they liked each other. Um, And you knew they shared a common bond with one another. And if you saw it over and over, you knew that became a power center. And that if you wanted to get something done, you go talk to this one and you could pretty much pick up the other three or four around them. So I learned a lot from those trips. This could be an episode of West Wing. Marcus, I bet you are very good at, uh, at your job. <laughs> that, is, that is great. And tell us about your current firm. Yo, my current firm, the Madison Group, started it with my partner, Rob Waters. We started it, actually came up with the idea while I was at Amtrak. And Rob's a Republican from Virginia. I'm a Democrat from Los Angeles. You know, and we were sitting over his house. He invited me over for a barbecue contest between he and one of my fraternity brothers, who's now chief of staff, who's currently the chief of staff for a member on the House side, who was a lobbyist. Who won the barbecue contest? You know, they're both friends, so... (laughs) And and because I'm a Californian, I appreciate all sorts of barbecue. Neither of their offerings was better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) But both were very good. But really, over over actually a bottle of moonshine, (laughs) we actually discussed forming a partnership and putting together a firm and, 
you know, a few weeks later, a few months later, actually, we we put it together and we did it. And the Madison Group is a bicameral, bipartisan, bicoastal firm. So we do work not just in Washington, but we also do work before the California State Legislature uh, in California, as well as the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles. You know, I always like to say that we we specialize in in the T's, the tax, tech, telecom, trade, and transportation. Uh, we represent uh, companies, countries, and even a few counties. <laughs> yeah, I like to just tie everything up with a nice little elevator pitch. But we really, uh, we really got to have a great team of people. We we try to keep the team small and tight, and we've done some great work for for some clients that you've or for some companies that you've probably never heard of, but then a lot of companies that you that you see and hear about all the time. I've really enjoyed this last eleven years of my life. Well, you just you just answered my uh, next question, which was when did you form the firm? So about eleven years ago. So actually, it's back in two thousand seven. So twelve years ago, and this is two thousand nineteen. If uh, college students are li- listening and interested in doing uh, an internship on the Hill, we've talked about the the association, the group that you have, mm-hmm. and also maybe your firm. Do you also have internships at your firm? So we do. We provide internships at our firm. In fact, we have two interns now. We had three over the summer, but we have an intern from the uh, John McCain Institute at Arizona State University, which is my alma mater. And then we have another um, intern from the Washington Institute. And so we always try to make sure that we give young people exposure, that we give them a great opportunity to see not just how Capitol Hill works, but how K Street works. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we treat them just like junior associates. We give them business cards. We send them up to hearings. They attend client meetings with us. Sometimes when, when we feel comfortable, we let them go on their own. And we really try to give them the full, you know, a, a very full and very well-rounded experience. You know, they get to meet members of Congress. They get to take photographs with them. One of the young men from the summer you know, got to attend a meeting with myself and Mark Morial, who's the president and CEO of the Urban League, and uh, at a meeting with Senator Van Hollen. He left that meeting and said, you know, I want to run for office someday. Having taken a picture being sandwiched between these two great men, it made him feel like he wanted to go out and do something great himself. And so that's what we really try to do for our interns. We try to, again, the exposure. Exposure quotient. My mother always taught me the exposure quotient. Carter G. Woodson, you know, said that a mind once expanded beyond its original parameters can never again regain its original form. And so we try to make sure that these kids, that we really try to blow their minds. And so that when they leave us, they go off and they continue to do, you know, they continue that momentum and continue to do good things. And we keep in touch with our interns. We talk to, I would say, of the interns that we've had over the last 12 years, we probably keep in touch with about 75% of them on a regular basis. They come back to the office. We help them get placed. We write letters of recommendation for graduate school, law school, business school. We write letter, letters of recommendation for jobs and positions. And we have a few working around town now, a few interns work, a few former interns working around town now. And we've got some that are, you know, out in Silicon Valley. We have uh, former interns who are, you know, completing their their legal studies. So we we just try to we try to give them a chance, give them some exposure, and then push them out. Well, Marcus, on that note, this has been great. 
Thank you for coming by. It was no, thank you for have, having me. It was great to have you on the show. And thank you for Ernie, for uh, Ernie Jolly, for reaching out. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Ernie's a great guy. Ernie's a great guy. Again, you know, not everybody makes the right fraternal choices, but uh, <laughs> he made the right professional choice. <laughs> All right, Marcus, thank you. Thank you. Well, there it is. I told you it was a great interview. Great sit down, Marcus. And great to learn about the Washington Government Relations Group, that association, and the important work that they're doing. So, Marcus, thank you very much for coming by. And thank you to Ernie Jolly for reaching out to us and setting up this interview. If anyone out there has an idea for someone who would be a good guest, you can reach out to us. Our contact information is uh, on the webpage, and you can find us, obviously, wherever you listen to your podcasts, Google, Apple, Spotify. You can subscribe and, and leave a comment. You can reach out to us. You can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And you can also sign up for our Monday morning email. And you can do that at our website, thelobbyingshow.com. And uh, that comes out every Monday along with the show. So, Marcus, thank you for coming by. And thank you, listeners. Have a great week. See you next Monday.